Welcome to Snap Sessions, a podcast that looks at international artists and their creative pursuits, as well as interesting articles and broadcasts across the political spectrum. My name is Doug Nunn. I'm joined by voiceover colossus Ken Krause, by our behind-the-scenes tech meister Marshall Brown, and by our artist-activist of the show, electronics whiz, musician, linguist, and fix-it man extraordinaire, Francis Rutherford. Support for Snap Sessions is brought to you by listeners who contribute generously at our link, patreon.com forward slash snap sessions, or through the link in the Snap Sessions website, thesnapsessions.com, and also the link in our show notes. Thanks to our Snappus Maximus contributors, Ron Hochsprung and Rick and Henny Newman, and to our supportive snappers, Peter and Sheila Jowers, Kathy White, Dominie Jowers and John Bird, Gabriel Geiger, and Christine Samus. Other contributors include Steve Weingarten and Jerry Shook. Snap Sessions is proud to announce our own Doug Nunn is publishing his book, Jolly Old Elf, The Art of Santa H. Claus, just in time for the holidays. Just listen to these reviews. From the Snow Yorker. <laughs> One of the ten coldest books of the year, a genuine tour de frost. From the North Pole Review of Books. An extraordinary look behind the scenes at just maybe the most benevolent operation on the whole planet. This book salutes the man and the crew who have brought us more joy than anyone else. In this time of pandemic and wannabe fascists, Santa's story needed to be told, and Frosty, Mrs. C, and their frozen crews do it with splendid vigor. From North Pole Variety. Excellently ecstatic. Xmas expose. And from renowned German critic Ralph Primer. Five out of five stars. Ho, ho, ho becomes ha, ha, ha. Jolly Old Elf can be purchased at Amazon.com, at independent publisher Ingram Spark, and ordered at your local bookstore like Mendocino's own Gallery Bookshop and Bookwinkles, online at gallerybookshop.com. Check Snap Sessions' website, thesnapsessions.com, for further information. Jolly Old Elf, The Art of Santa H. Claus, makes a great gift. And now... Snap Sessions explores epic screw-ups on planet Earth from the Environmental Hall of Fame. The Great Stink of 1858. Have you ever wondered what happens when you flush the loo? All the waste that goes down your toilet ends up underground in the sewer where it's safely carried away. But more than 150 years ago in London, there was nowhere for raw sewage to go. So it was dumped straight in the River Thames. And 
And in the hot summer of 1858, the smell became unbearable. It was called the Great Stink. Yes, and to be labelled the Great Stink, you must have a confluence of factors, a melange of muck-ups, and a cacophony of caca. And London's Great Stink of July and August 1858 had all of that. Unregulated industrial effluent, untreated human waste, and an extraordinarily hot summer, where temperatures in ordinarily cool London reached over 90 degrees consistently. With a horrific mix of poop, industrial slime, and heat, the Fleet Street Press quickly began calling the event the Great Stink of 1858. A reporter for the Standard described the River Thames as a pestiferous and typhus-breeding abomination. Ew. A lead article in the Illustrated London News moaned, We can colonize the remotest ends of the earth. We can conquer India. We can pay the interest of the most enormous debt ever contracted. We can spread our name and our fame and our fructifying wealth to every part of the world. But we cannot clean the River Thames. Britain was the home of the Industrial Revolution, and in those early days, industrial smoke was pouring into its atmosphere and waste was pouring into its waterways. This caused a rather regular flooding of industrial wastewater into the River Thames and north of London all over the Midlands waterways. Yet a new culprit had entered the scene, the water closet or flush toilet. Initially seen as a godsend, it was quickly exposed as an explosively fetid addition to the environment. Whether you were an aristocrat or a member of the burgeoning middle class, if you had money, you just had to have a toilet. Never mind whether you had a septic tank or not. What is that? Let's let Dr. Stephen Halliday of Gresham College explain further. But the real killer was the water closet. Now, the water closet was invented by a man called John Harrington in the reign of Queen Elizabeth I, but he only made two, one for himself and one for the Queen. Neither of them survived. In the late 18th century, a Yorkshire carpenter, George Brammer, rediscovered it and realized that you could make it more efficient and make it from mass-produced components. So from the late 18th century, the water closet becomes the must-have item for a Victorian household. It received a further boost at the time of the Great Exhibition in 1851, when an enterprising manufacturer of water closets called George Jennings offered to install his water closets in the Crystal Palace, the pavilion of the Great Exhibition, on condition that he could charge a penny a time, which is where we get the expression, spending a penny. Spending a penny indeed. In the middle of the 19th century, London had a very ancient brick sewer system. And although new sewers were being constructed all the time, many cesspits leaked methane and other gases. Most were in a poor state of repair, and they often caught fire or even exploded. In addition, the overflow from factories and slaughterhouses, which the Brits call by the charming French word abattoir, joined the growing surge of toilet flushings, 
to fill the River Thames with a malodorous sea of sludge which must have shocked the senses. A smelly smell that smells. Smelly. Things had been building towards some sort of eco-disaster for a long time. In his novel Little Dorrit, published as a serial between 1855 and 57, Charles Dickens called the Thames a deadly sewer in the place of a fine, fresh river. He stated further, I can certify that the offensive smells, even in that short whiff, have been of a most head and stomach distending nature. One of the greats of Victorian science, Michael Faraday, observed that, Near the bridges, the feculents rolled up in clouds so dense that they were visible at the surface, even in water of this kind. The smell was very bad and common to the whole of the water. It was the same as that which now comes up from the gully holes in the streets. The whole river was for the time a real sewer. Oh, my God! And then came the exceptionally hot summer of 1858. Starting in June, average temperatures in London reached 93 to 97 degrees in the shade, rising in the sun to 118 degrees. I mean, really hot! Shockingly hot! There had also been an extended spell of dry weather, and the level of the Thames dropped precipitously, with raw waste from the sewers clogging its banks. At one point, Queen Victoria and Prince Albert... Do you have Prince Albert in a can? (laughs) Is this supposed to be some kind of reference? I don't get it. Yes, I suppose it is something of a dated reference, isn't it? ...attempted to take a pleasure cruise on the river, but they returned to shore within a few minutes because the smell was so horrific. As the great stink became worse, authorities began pouring lime near the mouths of sewers to lessen the odor. Parliament got into the act when Prime Minister Disraeli added a proposed amendment to the Metropolis Local Management Amendment Bill, calling the Thames a Stygian pool, reeking with ineffable and intolerable horrors. But just because politicians start complaining blah 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 doesn't mean there will be change. Practical minds are needed to solve problems, and colossal problems need the most expert problem solvers. Enter one of the great engineering minds of history. Joseph Bazalgette. People had been putting up with the stench and disease for long enough. The great stink was the final straw. London needed the help of a genius. Enter Joseph Bazalgette, London's chief engineer with a background in building railways. Parliament gave him the job of solving London's sewage nightmare and what he came up with was a genius piece of engineering. Bazalgette's genius idea was to build a system of big sewage pipes to catch London's waste before it flowed into the river and London's drinking water. The sewage was then carried eastwards and pumped out to sea. No more stink. Genius! Yes, a genius engineer right in the nick of time. Joseph Bazalgette 
had been a consultant engineer for the railway and was a natural problem solver. He went right to work, developing a systematic plan for the city's sewer system, and then refining those plans for a fully revamped system. Initially, Bazalgette planned small local sewers with pipes about three inches in diameter to feed into a series of larger sewers flowing into the main outflow pipes, which were to be 11 feet high. There were to be outfall sewers for both North and South London to manage the waste for both sides of the River Thames. London was mapped into high, middle, and low-level areas with a main sewer servicing each and a series of pumping stations to move the waste towards the east of the city. Bazalgette planned for London's population increase. He worked to accommodate the demands of London's Commissioner of Works, Sir Benjamin Hall, and he moved the proposed discharge points for the sewers well beyond the limits of London. Granted, London's sewer water would end up in the North Sea, not exactly an eco-dream, but Bazalgette did deal with the immediate problem. Great engineering works are often ignored, or at least underrated, as they become a part of the landscape. But think about the epic scale of what Bazalgette imagined. Bazalgette planned for 1,100 miles of additional street sewers, which collected both effluent and rainwater. These then fed into 82 miles of huge interconnected sewers. 400 draftsmen worked on detailed plans and sectional views for the first phase of the building process. Bazalgette then had to plan for the sewage in low-level areas to be lifted at key points into the mid- and high-level sewers, which would then drain with the aid of gravity out toward the eastern outfalls at a gradient of two feet per mile. Bazalgette used Portland cement, relatively new at the time, and overcame doubts by instituting a quality control testing system. This was then shared with the cement manufacturers, who consequently used these to improve their products. The Crossness pumping station was opened in April 1865 by the Prince of Wales, who officially started the engines. In the Victorian era, a time famed for its frugality, Bazalgette was given a bonus that tripled his annual salary and was soon thereafter knighted. When Sir Joseph Bazalgette died in 1891, it was noted that the great sewer that runs beneath Londoners has added some 20 years to their chance of life. How many engineers can say that? There was a huge increase in human health and longevity during the 19th century. Very little of it was down to medicine. In those days, all doctors could do was put you to bed with a warm drink or cut bits off you and hope you didn't die in the process. But engineers, by providing clean water, could do a great deal. And that's what Bazalgette was doing. I do not doubt that portions and aspects of the Greater London sewage system are not environmentally sound. Neither do I doubt there could be much greater eco-improvements in the future, which would make all this environmentally more efficient and much greener. But let's give credit where credit is due, and salute Sir Joseph Bazalgette and his Victorian cohort for dealing with an eco-disaster of the first rank. Epic screw-ups on planet Earth, from the from Environmental Hall of This installment, The Great Stink, of 1858. This one solved by Joseph Bazalgette.
Stinky, stinky, stinky. Stinky, 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 stinky. A special Snap Sessions thanks to Janet Atherton for lending her brilliant English accent to our segment on the Great Stink of 1858. Thanks for listening to Snap Sessions. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to us on Patreon. We depend on the support of listeners like you. I'm here with Francis Rutherford. I've known Francis for, I would guess, close to 40 years at this point. I've worked with Francis as a colleague here at Mendocino High School. And also, Francis has worked on my house going way back, and we'll get around to talking about that. So I welcome you, Francis Rutherford, to Snap Sessions. Well, I'm glad to be here, Doug. Francis has done all kinds of things. He's been a musician. He's been an electronics teacher. He has been a linguist. We're going to talk about all that, but I know you grew up in the South Bay area, down by San Jose, near what became the Silicon Valley. What was it like growing up down there? Well, first of all, it wasn't Silicon Valley. It was Santa Clara Valley, and it was the major agricultural region for most of California. Come springtime, you'd look out. We lived up in the hills. You'd look out and it was just a sea of blossoms. Beautiful, all different colors. And basically, the labor force was the kids. And we'd go out and pick seasonal fruit. So we'd pick apricots, peaches, plums, uh, walnuts, whatever came along at that particular time. So I wasn't particularly aware of being a techie environment. Um, Basically, we were completely focused uh, for a lot of the season on fruit (laughs) and picking fruit. Wasn't your dad an engineer? Well, first of all, you know, I was thinking you and I have a lot in common. Yeah. Both of our dads were in World War II. My dad was actually in Korea, but yours was in WW2. I knew that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh Yeah. I mean, I'm going to tell you a little bit about my dad's background because I think it's significant. He grew up on a farm. His family owned a farm in Pennsylvania. His uncle was the head of the draft board in that area, and he enlisted my dad just to make a good cred with the community. (laughs) Sure enough, my dad who was apparently an excellent marksman, he was a really good shot, got into the invasion in Normandy, where he was shot in the hand, his right hand, which is his drafting hand. He was an engineering student at Lehigh, and kind of crippled and then taken out of service at that point. As a result of the GI Bill, he was able to complete his education. He went on to Caltech, graduating there, you know, engineering degree from there, and then he went on to Stanford. So he, he had a, quite a good career path that way. He worked for an en- engineer for a while. He was a civil engineer and a structural engineer, and then he s- established his own company. So his career path was pretty typical of what was going on in the Valley at that point. Anyway, I didn't know anything about his World War II thing because he never talked about it. I, I think that was a big, a big loss. I think I would have really benefited from it. So some sort of background from that. I think that's true of a lot of soldiers who came back. A lot of uh, people came back from World War II were kind of mum about the whole thing, you know? Well, I think they wanted to put it behind them. Yeah. Um, but that doesn't mean it went away. It's, uh, I think he was very intent on getting the business done, you know, getting on with his life. One of the things I noticed was, for example, we didn't have a television when I was growing up. And uh, every once in a while, one of my little friends on the street where he lived would say, hey, you want to come over and watch television? Sure enough, I'd go into the house and there'd be a whole bunch of little kids watching uh, the Mickey Mouse Club. And I didn't really get what that was all about because I was so fascinated by the television. Everybody on that street was an electrical engineer or had a, had a machine shop. and a, I mean, that was just the, the ambience at that time. So when they saw that I was interested in 
the television rather than the content of it. One of them, at some point, turned it around and showed me how everything worked. And I was absolutely fascinated. Uh, and apparently, he had built the TV from a Heath kit. So that was, I don't know if you remember those things. Well, uh, tell us about the Heath kits, and also tell us about this garage tech thing going on in the, what became the Silicon Valley. Well, that's how uh, Hewlett-Packard started out, in a garage. Yeah, right. Two guys hanging out and, and building... Um, uh, oscillators. Were you? Were they nearby you? Hewlett Packard um, within, uh, gang. Within, within five, ten miles. We didn't know them at the time, of course. Uh-huh. That was kind of the ambience. And you know, as kids, we didn't have TV. The only entertainment was reading books or fiddling with stuff. To give you a, a sample of where I was at at that point, as a toddler, I was very much aware that when people plugged things into the wall, really exciting stuff happened. <laughs> so one day, and I was crawling on the floor. I, I remember this little kind of vivid snapshot, I found a bobby pin. And I thought, well, what if what's to prevent me from sticking it into the <laughs> <laughs> And there was this huge explosion, showers of sparks, and I was absolutely fascinated. You know, I wasn't scared, I was just like, whoa, that is, there's something really interesting in those walls. Yeah. <laughs> so, and my mom, of course, came out, and she was just hysterical. Like, here's a little kid with a shower of burning paper clipper. It was sur- a bobby pin, yeah. Somehow you managed to survive the bobby pin experience, but you were also continuing on in terms of your interest in television sets and the like. Well, um, well the big thing in my family, the kind of running joke was, if somebody would say, where's the such and such? They would say, oh, it's probably in Francis's room. And uh, they'd go in there and there would be little pieces of it that I'd taken apart because I couldn't, I was always trying to find out what the secret sauce is. Uh-huh. At your school, were there other kids who were similarly interested or were you sort of finding yourself in a particular niche? Well, one thing is that this kind of activity wasn't represented in the school. It was sort of like, you want to play basketball? No, I'm going to go out and so-and-so's got a new lathe in this machine shop and I want to yeah. So there was kind of a, a sports techie seesaw in the daily life. And everybody's dad was worked in some like Varian or Hewlett Packard or some tech industry at that point. So, so he, for example, my dad, who was very anxious that I would go out and do stuff, and, you know, that I would be engaged because I would be either listening to music all the time or reading books. Mm-hmm. I decided that Cub Scouts were the way to go. So I joined this Cub Scout troop. And sure enough, all our, our uh, field trips would go to these different industrial parks that were springing up. I remember Varian Associates, which was the people who made the Klystron microwave tubes during World War II radar. And they, we would go there and they'd explain how it worked and show us examples and stuff. So it just became part of the ambience. Presumably, you end up at 18 or so at Princeton University. Mm-hmm. In those days, uh, it was still a boys' school. Mm-hmm. Students still had to dress up for class. Yeah. What was Princeton like back then? Well, first of all, it's interesting the way I decided to go to Princeton. It wasn't on my radar when I was mm-hmm. growing up. Sure. I, had no, I didn't even know it existed. But two things happened. I was a very into bicycles. I, uh, uh-huh. He gave me a bicycle for my one of my birthdays. And I, you took it apart. Well, I didn't, I'm just kidding. I didn't, I, didn't, <laughs> I didn't take it apart. I, I used to go cycling up in the hills. Early on, I would get up the top of the hill and I'd go zipping down full tilt. Well, very shortly after I got the bicycle, I was zipping down the hill and I ran headfirst into my dad's truck who was coming up the hill. Oh. And when I kind of woke up and came to... I was, my face was plastered against the driver's window, and my dad was absolutely white. I can just imagine him seeing his son 
you know, I never talked to any any about this about my to my dad because he was so he normalized everything. Like, oh, okay, you had an accident on the bicycle, and then I had another uh, over the handlebar face plant, which knocked out part of my front teeth, and oh I, I entered uh, high school with a fully scabbed face, and you know, eventually healed in some form. But my dad was saying basically I should play basketball uh-huh. because I had all this energy, you know. And he said, you know, it'd be a great outlet for your energy. I said, gee, Dad, I don't really know how to play basketball. He said, you'll figure it out. <laughs> That's kind of what, what Stephen Colbert's wife, Abby, told Stephen Colbert. When he said, I don't know if I can do this. He said, ah, don't worry, you'll figure it out. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I was in, on the basketball team. And in my, I think my junior year, I liked, I liked writing papers. And I would always make them kind of tweaky to the point where <laughs> <laughs> so I'd say, did you copy that from something? Because I always put puns and little weird stuff in the. Because I thought, gee, that poor teacher reading all these papers, and they're pretty, could be pretty dry. So I tried to make it witty and engaging. I always get these little circles on the paperback with uh, exclamation points or whatever. I'm never sure what that meant. But one day in my junior year, early in my junior year, the teacher, I remember so vividly at this point, called me up and she said, I really, really enjoy your paper. It was about the Foresight Saga and mm-hmm. Soames Foresight and the whole thing. I said, she said, I, I, know, I can't quite figure out the point of view of the paper. And I said, well, I was imagining what it would be like to be that character in the, you know, Soames Foresight and see where he, you know, what, he, what his perspective on things was. She said, oh, well, that's quite interesting. So we had a long conversation and she said, gee, that's, I, I'd never had a, sat down with a teacher at all before. It was never personal. It was just like, here's the paper, here's the grade. So she said, yeah, you know, I see that you're really into languages. And I said, well, I guess. I mean, I was taking Latin and French. And when we went to Japan, so I was dabbling in Japanese. I was always very interested in languages. She said, well, you know, my husband is a graduate student at Stanford in Russian history, and he's going to be getting a PhD from Princeton. She said, it's a beautiful place. It seems like it's very, it's very bucolic. And I think she said, I think you'd be happy there. But they have a fantastic critical languages program. Critical languages meant things like a Japanese, Chinese, Russian, Arabic. And I said, wow, well, that sounds really interesting. And so I wound up applying there just because it had a good critical languages program. But getting back to the basketball, because I had played on the basketball team, although I was mostly the manager, Mm-hmm, that's, sure. that's a whole other story. Yes, okay. Because <laughs> I spent most of my time fixing the time clocks and the scoreboards that I was supposed to be operating. <laughs> and I thought to myself, you know, there's no, no place in this planet that there isn't room for this, these kind of fix-it skills. But Bill Bradley, did you, did you remember Yes, remember the him? famous Bill Bradley, who well, became a United States senator after what? a great career as a basketball well, star. John McPhee had just written the book, A Sense of Where You Are, I think it's mm-hmm. called, about Bill Bradley. And I read the book and I thought, this is really interesting. And if I go to Princeton, I get to watch Bill Bradley play. Because they said that's like, like watching Willie Mays. So that's what I did. I, you end up in this critical languages. This is, I, I assume, a, a sort of a branch of linguistics. Didn't you do a double major or a mu- music well, and critical languages? It turned out that even though they had these wonderful language programs, and they were kind of on the cutting edge of language teaching, you know, all, all the little tweaks, and um, a lot of the pe- people have written books about learn how to learn, learn foreign languages. 
That wasn't something you could major in. What happened is the critical languages was available to graduate students and girls who were taking it um, from other colleges would come in. And so I thought, well, this is great. There's girls. And I get to take the language, but I can't major in it. So my advisor, he was a, a, a music professor. But, but he, he would graduate from Harvard, and his, he played in the Boston Symphony Orchestra, and his family was members of the Boston Symphony Orchestra. He said, well, you know, if you major in music, there's three aspects. There's composing, analysis, or music theory, and there's musicology. And he said, we encourage the students in the music department to take part of all of those. And we're going to re- require that you take German. We like Russian, if it's possible, because that's where all the archives of a lot of this music is. And when the Russians took over Germany, they shipped out, for example, a lot of the Bach archives. From East Germany, what was, became from, East well, Germany. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. And French or Italian, you know, whatever. whatever. But, but we really encourage you to, have to be very knowledgeable in foreign languages. And that way you can get credit in the music department. I said, sounds good. Cello is your main instrument. Well, Had you been a cellist in high school? Or well, what happened you? in fourth grade, all the students in the, in the fourth grade were invited to this large room, and it was just filled with instruments. And they said, they gave you the little seashore music test where you, you, they played different things on the piano and you just have to tell what, what the pitch is. And, and they said, well, you know, you can play anything because if you, if you have to play a pitched instrument, that's one thing. If you can play something that doesn't have fixed pitch, that's another path. Mm-hmm. So I went over and I thought, gee, I like the sound of the French horn. And I took the home the French horn. And I opened the case, and you know what brass instruments sound, smell like after Yes. Mm-hmm. And it was really gross. Uh-huh. And, and I don't think it had been sanitized. And I said, you know, I'm not going to put my mouth on this thing. <laughs> so I took it back. And he said, well, if you like the French horn, oh, maybe the cello. It's the same register. And I thought, cello, huh. Okay. I took the cello home. It was a, a plywood K cello. Now this is a <laughs> this is made like it was a boat. It was made out of preformed plywood in the shape of a cello. Uh-huh. And this particular one was optimized for school use because it had what are called patent pegs. So they were like a no slip, which means they slipped all the time. And it had a, a quick adjust end pin. Well, needless to say, none of those worked. And I spent a lot of time if I put a little bit more stuff over here and do this and this, I can actually get it to be stable enough to play. So you jerry-rigged your own cello. I had to fix my way into... <laughs> this is how blissfully ignorant I was. They had some students coming around demonstrating the different instruments. And there's one, this one cellist, a girl who was in fourth grade, or fifth grade maybe. She was a wonderful, wonderful cellist. And she played this piece, The Merry Farmer by Schumann. And I thought, wow, I've never heard anything like that. That's fantastic. She was very graceful and... and attractive too. I didn't, didn't hurt. And by the way, I happened to visit her several years ago you know, up in Oregon, which, where, she, where her husband was teaching. And uh, she's a well-known cello teacher at this point. Getting back to the cello. Yes, yes, because, yes. Mm-hmm. Because at one point, I, I had enough, and I used to play all the time. I had a Baroque trio. In the summer, we did Broadway shows. I was mm-hmm. the paid orchestra for that. At one point, I thought, you know, this plywood cello, is, I'm not going to, it just doesn't work. And so one of my mother's boyfriends, who lived in New York, set out another cello, and that was somewhat better, but still it was not well adjusted. And so finally, when it looked like I was going to be going to Princeton, I thought, well, I don't want to haul a cello across country. 
So, and the guy wanted the cello back. So I said, okay, here's the cello. And in the meantime, our kid orchestra that I was playing in went to Japan, and I and another musician in the orchestra who was an oboist went halvesies on a viola that, that was a Japanese viola, which was a little weird, <laughs> but, but it was so much better than anything else that I'd um, had up to that point. And I decided to play viola. And then there was a lot of gigs for violists. So that's how I, I, I wound up in Princeton with a viola. And the viola part of this thing is that the girl who wanted to be buy my half of the viola. So I, now I didn't have a cello and I didn't have a viola. So I, I didn't have any money. So my parents said, well, you're going to have to figure that one out. <laughs> you know, I, I can't imagine what, they, what their take on me was because I was so tweaky about things. But I, call, I went to visit the luthier who lived in San Jose. And a luthier? I, a luthier, the guy who works on instru- musical okay. stringed instruments. I explained my situation. I said, is there some way I could maybe work for you and pay for a viola that way? And uh, he said, yeah, he said, that would be great. And so I came and went every Saturday to the violin shop and did repair work and clean, you know, basic stuff. In the meantime, I went up with a nice viola and I was paying it off. So I went up in, in Princeton with a viola. That's my question. Okay. Did you actually major in both music and linguistics at no, Princeton? There then? was no linguistics major, but there were fantastic linguistics classes. They, they had because these were, uh, you know, world class. The linguistics department was very substantial, but no, there wasn't. It wasn't one of, one of the majors. So I majored, majored in music. Majored in music, and, and you took a lot of languages. I mean, for, to give you an example, I took French, and I was in the conjunction with that I was in a Baudelaire seminar, which was really interesting. And then after my freshman year, there was an opening for summer work in, in um, France. And I applied for it, and I went through the interview and got it. My French was not very good at that point, but good enough, I guess. And I worked in a bank in Paris for wow. the summer. Where that was a whole, I mean, I could go on and on about that. But And you learned German, and you learned some Russian as well. Yeah. How many languages would you say you're conversant in? Well, I can get by in French and, and German. Uh-huh. And Russian, I can figure that one out. I have a lot of weird Russian stories about how... <laughs> I actually went to Russia at one point with a, with a choir. <clears throat> I was the roadie. Wherever we went, we were invited to people's houses to have dinner with them meals with them. And I thought, well, it's a good time to try out my Russian. And so the, the hostess of one of these meals said, uh, oh, how did you, in Russian, how do you like the dinner? And I said, which means very sad. Grusny is sad. And I meant to say, which means delicious. <laughs> so I figured that. <laughs> uh, I, my, my Russian was erratic, I guess, is a good way uh-huh. to describe yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, I had a lot of vocabulary, but I didn't, yeah. you know, under, under the pressure, it didn't, it didn't hold up. Really. Now, when you came out of Princeton, you made a living as a professional musician for a well, while, playing went, in various orchestras or symphonies. Yeah, or, I went back to the violin shop, uh-huh. and I thought, you know, I really love the idea of building things. One of the people there was a bow maker um, and made really beautiful bows. He was in his late 70s, and he was writing a book about bow making, and he couldn't find anybody to do the layout. And I said, oh, I'll do the layout for you. I can have access to a nice typewriter, and I can do drawings. And he said, well, I'll teach you bow making. You can do that for me. So I got to learn bow making from this guy. And it's just phenomenal. I made a lot of bow. I made oh, probably hundreds of bows at this point. Oh. 
That was my major, one of my sources of income. And then I learned the luthier trade, how to set up instruments. And, and the, any, any one of these little yeah. things has a, a lot to add. Am I right in that you did play in various symphonies and also made income that way as well? Oh, yeah, that was my major gig. What I, are some I, of the ones you played in? Well, I played in the San Jose Symphony. And okay. that was interesting. That was kind of the feed orchestra for San Francisco Symphony. Some of the people from there then auditioned for San Francisco and got in. And so they, but I didn't want to be in, in that. The, the San Jose Symphony was a lot, lot less pressure. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got there just the right time because they had this fantastic conductor, George Cleave, and this was in, in 1976, who decided to do a season of American music. And so John Cage came over and came out and conducted. Aaron Copeland came out and conducted the orchestra in Appalachian Spring. Oh, my. Henry Parch. Some of these people don't jog anything for a lot of people, but these were all the leading, cutting-edge American composers. Mm-hmm. American composers were kind of very, very adventurous. And so we did a whole season of American music, and every concert featured a still-living, like, iconic composer. It was really interesting. Uh, I remember John Cage so vividly because of the way he conducted. So, I, I, But at that point, I was going to um, audition for different orchestras. I played in the Monterey Symphony and uh, the Fremont's Orchestra. I mean, every night was a rehearsal. Mostly viola player or cellist or both? Well, here's, here's the interesting mm-hmm. point. I was going to audition, and um, they said, you know, there's not really many openings for viola players. And I said, gee, I, uh, yeah, it would be pretty pretty stiff competition. And I, I said, well, what do you suggest? They said, well, you know, if you can play bass, you are going to be, have it made because everybody wants bass players. And I thought, a little light went on. I said, okay. <laughs> so I was working at the violin shop. And I said, you know, could we get a bass fee from the instrument supplier? I'll set it up and take care of it. And so at that point, we, I did the, all the work to get it working and studied with somebody at um, San, Jose, San Jose State, a really fine bass player who was the principal in the Seventh Day Symphony. We started a bass club. We did uh, bass ensemble work. I mean, I got totally immersed in bass. So I was doing bass, playing bass in all these orchestras, double bass. At this point, you've played all these different string instruments. You're working as a luthier. Yeah. And you've also been tinkering with a variety of other musical aspects. You've been back on the West Coast from your Princeton education. Somehow, you end up in Mendocino. That leads me to meeting you okay. sooner or later, <laughs> right. yes. Uh, you know, just as, just as I look at my, my life, all of the things that I've progressed in in my life have come about as a result of a kind of a little pivot point mm-hmm. that was just completely a nothing thing at that And serendipitous, point. too. Well, mm-hmm. when she said, oh, you're interested in foreign languages, I said, well, yeah, yeah, I guess so. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm taking Latin, and, mm-hmm. you know, and I want to take Greek, and uh, so I guess that constituted interested in foreign language. And then my dad saying, you need to play basketball, you know, and, and that was a whole other path to Princeton, for example. And then the guy saying, oh, you know, if you play double bass, so I thought, so I got really into it, and, and suddenly with some very fine teachers, and um, did a lot of double bass servicing. Now, one of the problems is I was living in Palo Alto near Stanford University. There was some really good housing sort of out in the country and very cheap. And I was cycling to work every day in East San Jose, mm-hmm. which is about 25 miles each way, and then cycling back at night. Because at, at this point, all the fruit orchards were being torn up. Uh, there were clouds of smoke as they burn all the fruit trees. The whole environment there felt very weird. You know, it, 
It used to be that the weather there was kind of crisp and fresh and, you know, vital. And it suddenly became kind of muggy. And I said, you know, there's something wrong here. I don't want to drive. There's too many cars on the road. Besides that, I could commute faster on a bicycle because it was so much bumper to bumper at that point. And these fruit trees, their orchards were being torn up to build industrial parks. So now it's a solid industrial parks and no fruit trees. But then I was playing double bass. I finally got to the point where I thought, you know, this is just not a good, a good way to live. I'd have to take the bus with my bass on it to, to go to the Performing Arts Center for rehearsals and stuff. So I thought, you know, I'm kind of burned out on performing a professional music. I was on the Players Committee, and you know, there's kind of this grind that happens with you. You have a conductor that's very ambitious, and the, he's always pushing the people in the orchestra, and there's this kind of tension between the musicians. And, the, and I said, I just like a musical experience. I don't want all this other stuff. So I said, I think I'll go up and visit my brother who lives in Mendocino. And that's where you come in. <laughs> so I'm sitting there and I think, gee, this is a nice place. Not much else going on culturally, although there, of course there was. And uh, so I said, well, you should, you should drop by the Seagull restaurant and have one of their delicious meals. So I said, yeah, sounds good. So I went into their coffee shop and look at the menu. It's a, it's a chicken fried steak. I've never had that. I, it sounds promising. <laughs> and so I ordered the chicken fried steak and it came and it was delicious, but it had this very th thick gravy on it. Now, I suppose that's what chicken fried steak is supposed to look like, right? It's kind of like this country gravy. Right. Okay. But I thought. The gravy was too thick for you, is so what I you're saying. Too thick, and I wrote too thick in the gravy. And said, <laughs> Could you send this back to the kitchen? I thought, what's to lose here? Yeah. And, and Doug comes out with his chef's toque and, you know, the. Uh, yeah. <laughs> what's the matter? You not like him? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I just burst out laughing. Oh, you don't like my sauce? <laughs> <laughs> so that, that's how we met. That's how and, we yeah. met. You were also doing plumbing and electrical work at the time, which is also one of those kind of things, which is, uh, it's hard to find a plumber who's also an electrician. Yeah. yeah. And well, so I got you to come out to my house right, yeah. and work on, I think you worked on the plumbing and I think you helped me with some electricity. Yeah. Johnny Robin wasn't available oh, at yeah. the time or something like that. So you started helping with the electricity. And then well, I live on a communal land arrangement. So you worked on some of the other houses too. So you were showing this aspect. Here is this musician slash luthier slash a guy who's with a strong interest in electronics who also does electrical work and plumbing. Mm -hmm. How did you get involved in the construction trades? That's a long story. But, yes, they, but basically <laughs> what happened is while I was working in the violin shop, people would come in and and say things like, oh, uh, my such and such isn't working. And mm -hmm. they would be like owning a, they have a restaurant or, or a deli or something like that. And I said, oh, well, I'll take a look at it. In college, it, word got out that I repaired things. I mean, I, you know, I haven't put it out there. Mm -hmm. um, and there's so many college stories that it would be. Yeah, there you are, Princeton with a bowler hat and a striped <laughs> suit and, or something like that going well, to repair I, something. I wasn't that. No, I was, <laughs> actually, even though suits were required... They had just dropped, I think, Compulsory Chapel. Mm. I was one year away from having, uh, being co-ed. Oh, yeah. And so I was right between that. So, uh, so my gesture of defiance was to go around in a T-shirt and blue jeans. Yeah, that was my, everybody, a lot of the others 
I mean, there was kind of a counterculture going on there. Mm-hmm. It was, you know, it was the 60s. Anyway, we're going out there for fixing. So I would come home and there'd be stuff to fix and I would fix it. And I, I earned a lot of good, you know, a certain amount of money mm-hmm. uh, doing yeah. that. And I, you know, I didn't have really a, any pr- pr- uh, formal training in that. It was just, you know, after a while, certain things seemed, you know, you get a kind of an intuition about it. Mm-hmm. So I came up to visit my brother and I was um, hanging out with him for a while. And we were living at uh, Point Cabrillo, the park there. There was a drought, that's what it was. Uh-huh. And so 76, water, 77, yeah, right around there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And people's water systems were not, were failing. And so I get these calls, can you come out and take a look at my water system? I didn't put anything out that I was uh, doing that kind of work. But I think my brother said, oh, you asked my brother, he's pretty good about stuff like that. So I would go out there and fix the plumbing, which is always usually involves some sort of wiring problem and sort of plumbing problem. And pretty soon I got referrals from plumbers and electricians, and I would go out and help them. So I picked it up that way. Uh-huh. So you was... with Johnny Robbins. Yes, of yeah. course. Who, uh, who, by the way, was a plumber and electrician. Yes, that's correct. Uh, Johnny uh, Robin, who I hope to interview someday, is a uh, country music songwriter back in Nashville. And for years he worked here in Mendocino as a plumber, electrician, also writing country songs right. before he, he ended up moving he back. He his guitar during break, uh, breaks in construction mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and uh, come up with these. He wrote a science fiction country western song yeah and he wrote a great polka country western song <laughs> as I, would, I recall and he's had a number of hits actually so johnny you're going to be interviewed someday here, so so I, 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 did you ever hear uh, there were footsteps on the pillow where her head should have been yeah, exactly that was an excellent <laughs> tune so john we're coming for you so you're on the north coast and you became fast friends with bob blick who oh. ran the uh, regional occupation program electronics program oh. here in mendo high yeah, let me tell you how that happened way back when when i was gigging with a double bass um, and I finally needed transportation. So I got a Volkswagen bug and figured I could kind of squeeze the bass into it. But some of my colleagues took pity on me and they said, you know, you really need a bigger car. And so they gave me a, of all things, a Pinto, which was actually just about the right size. And I said, oh, that's great. Uh, you know, I didn't have a lot of money. And so this is a, a free Pinto. I'll go for that. But it didn't run very well. And I thought, you know, there's something not working right on this car. <laughs> and I said, I know it's got a great engine. It's a 2000 Opel or Vauxhall German engine in line four. And those are really excellent uh, engines. But it's just a total dog. So I took it to various mechanics and they said, yeah, it doesn't run well, but I can't figure it out. So I bought the service manual on it and I'm reading through it and I'm thinking it feels like an exhaust manifold leak. And then I come to this page where it says, oh, there's a deceleration valve. And I said, why would they put a deceleration valve? It's a bypass valve that acts, you know, when you take the foot off the pedal, uh, injects extra gas in, so it's a richer mixture and burns off so you get a better nitrous oxide rating. Hmm. Anyway, I, I took the carburetor apart and found that, sure enough, there was a little diaphragm in there. It had a little pinhole. I got out the crazy glue, plugged the pinhole. car worked great. This car I drove up to. Mendocino with. But anyway, at one point I thought, you know, it's time for a tune-up. And so we said, oh, you've got to take it to Bob Blick. He's just an absolute genius about it. He'll tweak out, tease out the last bit of performance on that car. So I take it to Bob, and he's tuning it. He, he's not very uh, flattering about the car. He said, yeah, it's got a good engine, but it's not, very good, not a very good car. But he went ahead, and, and then I, I started to talk to him about my experiences with cars. 
And mind you, I had no, this is all basically picked up information. You know, I just sort of groped my way through the thing. And I was telling you about how I bought the manual and I figured out there was a deceleration valve. And so we have, you know, wound up having an hours long conversation with this guy. We just started talking about uh, transistors and I said, yeah, I, I used to do transistor stuff, but I have to tell you, back in the day, when I, when you, you'd save up your money, transistors are new on the scene, and you'd save up your allowance and you'd buy a transistor. <clears throat> they were very expensive and they were very moody. They had good days and bad days, and that was because of the architecture. They were point contact rather than epitaxial diffusion, which they are now. So the joke was that their, their formal name for a transistor is a bipolar transistor. <laughs> and I said, it's just a, I, my joke with Bob was, yeah, I can see why they were bipolar. I mean, they had good days and they were very moody. <laughs> so anyway, so we are talking, we just, and he said, you know, I'm teaching this class and you'd probably be interested in, you know, being part of it. I mean, I was an adult section. So I went to the adult class and I totally got into it. We were just building all kinds of really cutting edge stuff. And this was uh, beginning uh, uh, our uh, regional occupation right. program electronics uh, lab here at uh, Mendocino yeah, High School. Yeah, uh, uh, community center. That was a little trailer, you know, driving simulator trailer. Mm -hmm. And um, it was like being in a submarine. Right. It was packed full of students. And the chances of actually being able to work with them. And there's one person, maybe 16 students in this little trailer. So I said, I'll tell you what, I'll, when I finish my, my work, I'll come in and help you with the students. And so we were able to do some really amazing project. I, I could show you some of them. I still have them. And those students I, actually wound up, in a lot of cases, going on with, into really fabulous careers as electronics uh, majors in yeah. college. Do you remember Dick Parsons? I don't. Okay. Uh -huh. Well, he was, yeah. he, you know, he was head of the Electrical Engineering Society at uh, Santa Barbara. And so there was this really rich culture there. And it has stayed that way. Now, at a certain point, Bob left, was, and then you took over the program. Did he go to Santa Rosa? or? Well, what happened, he had been teaching no. for seven years, and okay. thought, you know, time for a sabbatical. And he mm -hmm. also wanted to explore some other kinds of options. Um, you know, it's hard sometimes working for a, something like ROP, yeah. because there's kind of a disconnect, I think, between the administration and the actual groundwork dealing with students. I mean, they were very generous in some ways in terms of uh, materials and supplies, but we, I remember doing a p attendance, for example, on Scantron bubble forms. Oh, yes. That, oh, I did that too, yeah. Oh, horrible experience. Well, Bob oh, so, left, and when did you take over the electronics well, I, I program, said, said, which has gone through numerous, you know, California technical education now, and it was regional occupation right. program back then. And when did you take over? Because you've been teaching electronics here for multiple years. Yeah, about 20 years. Yeah. 20 years. Maybe 22. Oh, well, what happened is Bob wanted to take a semester off. So he needed somebody to fill in the semester. Uh, students were getting a science credit for taking electronics if they got two semesters of it. So he didn't want to leave those students hanging. So I said, okay, well, I've been teaching the um, lab section of the College of the Redwoods. They had an electronics program there. Uh, it was book learning. Uh -huh, kind of thing. Uh -huh. And I was teaching the lab, lab part of it so you could so give the students a hands-on experience. So I applied for a credential and was able to document and get the uh, mm -hmm. a a temporary credential. Yeah, I can just see the credential committee. Let's see, this guy's a Princeton grad with a background in Luthier. Uh, well, how do we how do we sign well, this guy? I mean, well, that, <laughs> that gets into something interesting. After a semester, Bob decided he really didn't want to come back. They made it very difficult for him. And so uh, I think it was Mark Iconiello asked mm -hmm. if I would mind staying on for another semester. 
and finishing out the use of the student to get that science credit. And at that point, I went ahead and did all the rest of the paperwork and got invested in, in as a, um, you know, my credential was polished up and ready to go. But I had to interview for the position, and there were other candidates. And um, the interview process was very interesting. They asked me what my priorities were in the class. And I said, well, I really want to have uh, girls in the class. I think it's really important. I think it's very empowering to have girls there. And they said, well, you know, I, I look at your, really, your resume. Yeah, there's this restaurant business. I had a restaurant with Debbie Dawson at one point. Oh, yeah. yeah um, and that's where, you know, you and I have a lot in common that way. Yes. Because <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. And, and of course, restaurant workers, that particular, about for two or three years, that was the most grueling thing I've ever done. And they said, how does that, you know, how, how does that work into what you're doing with the students? And I said, well, let me tell you about restaurant work. You've got all these hungry people, and you've got this wonderful uh, cuisine, and it has to hit the table at the perfect time for the cuisine and the customer. And there's no fudging on that. Timing. Timing yeah, is uh -huh. everything. And I said, imagine you've got a bunch of birds with their beaks open, waiting for worms. You've got to be able to stuff the worms in the beaks uh -huh. and do it in such a way that they're going to be, you know, you've got a menu, a palate. And palate. the worms must be flavorful. <laughs> they have to be tasty. Well, mm -hmm. you know, there's no such thing as a bad worm. If you're <laughs> <laughs> and I think any kind of attention that you can get from, you know, give a student is good attention. You know, yeah. even if it isn't like lands right in the middle of their sensibilities. What are some of the things you emphasize in your electronics program? Because I know now you have the last five years or so, you've been doing a robotics program. But for years before that, you had been taking things apart. Typically, when you walk into Francis's classroom, there might be 12 to 15 young people in there working, taking things apart, putting things together, building robotic type things. Tell us about the electronics okay. program. By the way, we have 3D printing and we do 3D design at one point. Well, first of all, a lot of that's from Tobin because Tobin's very cutting edge about. You know, we, have, we actually have a competitive robotics team. So it's a nice balance. Robotics is actually building things, programming the things, wiring the things. So it's, it's the same skill range that you would have in, in almost anything you do. For every sensibility of the student, some students are great at building. You know, they have a really good mechanical knack. Some students are really good at programming. Some students are just fantastic at competitive strategy. Mm -hmm. And they all talk back and forth to each other. And I think that that's, you know, like you can fix it in software, you can fix it in hardware. So there's a dialogue going in into this competition. So it's um, kind of like a stone soup type approach to, yeah. you know, you all contribute something. And by the way, a lot of those students come out and they, they are wonderfully successful. Quite a few students um, have wound up in, at Tesla and places like Google. Is, and I, I asked one of them once, Gee, what, you know, I know, you know those are very lofty. I mean, how did you get into the those kind of positions? You know, that's impressive. And they said, well, you know, there are a lot of a lot of people who are brilliant programmers, for example, or brilliant this. Very few people really know how to work in a group or work collaboratively. And he said, and the guys from Mendocino are just totally used to doing that. It's not just that program; it's the culture here. Everybody gets along, right? And there's a whole range of sensibilities. Yeah. You know, there's brilliant uh, theoreticians and very pragmatic 
of construction type people. Yeah. Yeah. But that also speaks to the fact that you've given them a home here at the electronics lab. You've given home to a lot of quirky kind of people. Well, you and I had the same constituents. Yes, right? we had for, for many years. I had been teaching the Continuation High School right next door to Francis's lab. And before that, I was teaching the drama class and so on. So we were both involved with people who sometimes didn't fit in. But you've been doing this for years and you've found homes for all these really well, interesting Well, the thing is, you do minds. things that, like your your uh, improv troupe, yeah. I mean, you're out in the community doing stuff, right? Mm -hmm. So the thing that we do in the lab is people from the community are invited to come in and they sometimes they need some <clears throat> help with learning uh, how to use a computer. Um, sometimes it's a more technical thing. Sometimes they have something that's broken and needs repair. Uh, we try to be a, a pretty seamless integration with the community. Yeah, It's, a, it's kind of a drop-in, yeah. you know, very casual. But the students are so gracious about sharing their skills and knowledge with Another aspect of the electronics lab is that it's sort of a repair shop for the community. Mm -hmm. If you have a broken printer or a broken vacuum cleaner, mm -hmm. I've brought Francis before, you bring in your broken electronics item or something that might vaguely have something mm -hmm. electronic about it, and a student and Francis will look at it. The student and Francis will help define the problem. You will then come back a day or two or three days later or whatever, and the thing will Will usually be fixed sometimes it's unfixable yeah. and then Francis will ask you to contribute to the program so the student usually gets a small amount of that here well here's the, 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 the we, we emphasize that this service is completely free that it's community service and I said but if people have been known to tip the student and that I just leave it at that and so there's no problem if they just walk out with the thing First of all, we're not in a culture where it's, it's uh, economically feasible to repair things. If they're broke, I, I, in my own life, I'm always fixing something that's, that's broken in my own life because I have a pretty good sense of uh, intuition about it. And um, the thing that I emphasize with the students is it's actually very easy to fix the problem. Once you can say, this is what the problem is, we can fix it. But getting something apart, identifying the problem, and then fixing it, and then putting it back together again, the disassembly and reassembly is the big trick. And especially because we do a lot of laptop repairs. Which is a whole other bailiwick there. Yeah. And also, uh, we used to do a lot of carstereo installations too, you know, back when <clears throat> Big Boomy Base was the was the uh, oh yes, remember yes, that? Yes, yes. Yeah. There's been. I I have to add. There's been a lot of cars that come through <laughs> this parking lot that shake windows blocks away. Yeah. So. yeah. Well, we used to have a, a teachers that would come down and hey, stop that noise from up the hill. Yeah. I said, so I said, okay, that's an, that's an A on the project. Yeah. <laughs> it's like the highest accolade. Yeah. It is. <laughs> Window shaking right. A. You know, I also wanted to ask you about Mendocino Music Festival yeah. is now, I believe, 35 years old, Something something like that. Like that. Yeah. And um, you've been involved with it for much of that time. Day one. Yeah. And now, of course, this past year we had to take off due to COVID. But now this year they're going to be back at Cotton Auditorium, mm -hmm. uh, sort of a refurbished. It's been taking place for years in tents on the Mendocino Headlands. Tell us about how you got involved with the Mendocino Music Festival and what are some of your contributions? Well, basically, the music festival is the kind of brainchild of Susan Waterfall and Alan Pollock. And I started playing in the local orchestra playing bass and then actually bass and cello in the local orchestra uh, from the when it was first started by Tyler Lincoln and Marcia Sloan mm -hmm. and then Tyler moved out moved away 
and Alan Pollock stepped in as conductor. And then he had this kind of core group of locals, and that was the nucleus of the uh, music festival. So I just got involved in it that way. But then I would get into things like, well, when they, did, they were doing operas, I did the super titles and the right. infrastructure around that. And also set up the original electrical distribution system for them when they, you know, when they first started. So a combination of fix-it man I, well, and musician. Yeah, I, I've mm-hmm. always put my multimeter in the supply pocket of the cello case mm-hmm. because a couple of times somebody would overload a breaker and I had to go out with the meter during the, in the middle of the concert. <laughs> and troubleshoot the problem. I should mention that Francis is married to an excellent piano player, Carolyn Steinbach. To Francis's great credit, as a, a string player, he has taken on learning piano in the last multiple like, years. Like you have too, right? Yes, I, I am a, a bumbling boob still on the piano, although it's still taking lessons. Mm-hmm. But Francis was always very wonderfully paternal in a friendly way mm-hmm. about well, putting his arm around me and saying, well, don't worry, Doug, you'll get it eventually. <laughs> <laughs> you'll figure it out. Yeah. Yes, yes. But it's been interesting because I was always able to check in with you about uh, different aspects of music and you would coach me. Uh, I remember saying, well, I'm learning this um, box song. And, oh, you're into polyphony. And I, I remember thinking, well, okay, now, okay, as long as you say so. But let me tell you why that was yes, so please. interesting. Because basically with polyphony, you have the two hands doing the same kind of thing. So... Somebody said it's like Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers. Ginger Rogers has to do everything that Fred Astaire does, but backwards and in heels. And that's exactly what piano playing is like. Your right hand is pretty clever for yeah. most people. Yeah. The left hand, has, in polyphony, has to do the same kind of things that the right hand does, but backwards because their thumbs are in a different place. So these are the you know thumb things like that. And you, your brain kind of resists looking at things that way. So you have to kind of trick it. So sometimes I'll play the left hand with the right hand, and the left hand will say, oh, I see what's going on. Okay, yeah, sure. (laughs) I've been doing those dozen-a-day exercises lately, and my piano teacher has me playing backwards. Yeah, with one hand, my right hand is playing the left-hand part, and my left hand is playing the right-hand part. (laughs) And I, my goodness, you know. Well, you know what you need? You need the Bernays brothers. Yeah, yeah. The Bernays brothers. (laughs) Imagine piano forehand with the Bernays Yeah. (laughs) The Bernays brothers are uh, part of an old double act that I was in of a two-headed French chef. So one of the things that is, is really interesting about having known you for so long is how many aspects of life you combine. Uh, As we've seen in this interview, you've been a musician, you're a fix-it repairman, you've been a plumber, electrician, electronics guy, and you also know multiple languages. But it strikes me that curiosity is the link here. You've been curious about all this stuff. You know, they're really, in a lot of ways, they're all the same thing. I once studied, uh, did a double bass summer session with a very famous double bass soloist, Gary Carr. And I, I, I said, gee, I, it's so nice that you're willing to work with adults. I, I said, who are your best students? And he said, oh, engineers. And I said, really? And you would think that that would be the opposite of it. He said, no, they figure out what the problem is. They try out different solutions. They find one that works. They enhance it. They go through this process and they can play it. And music Playing music is all about that kind of process. And I thought, yeah, that's true. Well, you learn a language. You, you basically have your exercises, your skill sets, your kind of routines that you do with your brain. Anything you do really comes from the same source. So when you're teaching students, and I think you found this too, if you find that that student is really good at um, dynamic learning, I think I put it down, oh, kinetic learning. That's a very, very powerful 
way of, of pasting information into the brain. For example, if you're trying to think of the word for, uh, in Spanish for ceiling and floor, do you know what those are by the name? No, I don't. Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, because I don't speak Spanish. But finally, I, one day I went, techo, piso. <laughs> uh -huh. And that thing, so now that just doing that gesture etched it into my brain. Oh, I see. Francis had just made one hand go up toward the ceiling and one hand go down toward piso. the floor. Uh -huh. So, if you can mime it out, and you, as a person who does uh, improv, know that you can't just sit there and say the jokes. You have to sell the joke, right? Yeah. Or the routine. And the more you can do that, the, the more successful you'll be. Apropos of selling the joke, um, Francis and I have had a lot of talks about teaching over the years. And if you could leave us with some thoughts about some of what you've enjoyed most about teaching or perhaps your philosophy of teaching, what, what might that be? Well, first of all, I really enjoy the students. I, I really like them as people. And I, I mean, sometimes students do things that are a little irritating, you know, like being not on time with this work and stuff like that. And I don't fault that for the student. I think that puts me in a bind. It's like, I, I told one student, I just hate to give you a student anything less than a great grade, but I have to. And that's the most agonizing part about it. That's the worst part about being a teacher, is giving a really smart person a mediocre grade. Because you're an A person. You need to show it. And so over the years, I've worked with all levels, of, and, they're, and they really are brilliant people. I mean, everybody's smart in a really powerful way. You just need to figure out what that, how to get into that, or plug into that kind of intelligence. Well, it's been a pleasure, Francis. I have thoroughly enjoyed working with you, teasing each other, having a good laugh together <laughs> over the years. In the end, I have to salute not only your abilities as a teacher and sort of a general polymath of the area, but also you're very curious about things. And I think that's one of the things that leaves me with, enjoy your curiosity and follow those paths yeah. because those are wonderful things. Yeah. And Doug, we will get to your tube radio <laughs> next year. I have some students who are very anxious to... <laughs> to I can always bring project. it back. I have a uh, late, uh, late 1940s German radio that had a difficulty, and Francis uh, was going to try to fix it. But this year, having been a COVID year, we, she hasn't been able to get students to look at it. So yeah. that's hopefully we'll have yeah. a return engagement. Francis Rutherford, we want to thank you very much for being on Snap Sessions. You know, whether you've been cursing me for having overly thick gravy <laughs> or coaching me on how to deal with a problematic student, it's been a joy to work with you. Well, Doug, it's always nice talking to you with you and um one of these days you can invite me over for dinner and serve me chicken fried steak you got a I'll deal <laughs> i'm going to give you a good chicken schnitzel oh, oh that'd be great yeah. i'll bring a toothpick though just in case <laughs> okay thank you very much francis Thanks to our artist of the show, electronics whiz, musician, linguist, and fix-it man extraordinaire, Francis Rutherford. Our production team includes techmeister Marshall Brown, jack-of-all-trades Ken Krause, writer-interviewer Doug Nunn, and our logo designer, Daniel Stieglitz. Don't be an airhead. Get out there and do something creative. Dabble in something that inspires you. Read something challenging. Expand your perspective. Our aim is to give you an international outlook on the arts and a critical look at world politics. Salute the power of creativity and foster international solidarity. Make Mother Earth great again. 
Support for Snap Sessions is brought to you by listeners who contribute generously at our link, patreon.com forward slash snap sessions, or through the link in the Snap Sessions website, thesnapsessions.com, and also the link in our show notes. 